a year into the Russian invasion of Ukraine, is Israel maintaining its policy of neutrality? Is the Russian presence in Syria still a good enough reason for the Jewish state to decline under Dag Ukraine's repeated requests of anti-missile defense systems? To find out answers to these questions, I turn to Ksenia Svetlova. Svetlova immigrated to Israel from Moscow at age 14 and fluent in Arabic for years she was able to use her Russian passport to report from areas most Israelis will never see in the Middle East. I first met Svetlova about 18 years ago when, as a flashy Russian-language TV news star, she came to me and offered to write articles on Palestinian affairs in the Middle East for the magazine I then edited. In 2015, she renounced her Russian passport and stepped away from journalism to join the Knesset in the Zionist Union Party headed by Tsipi Livni. Svetlova served there until 2019. I always appreciated how Svetlova couches situations such as the feeling in Ukraine today in terms that Israelis can understand. It's their moment of 1948, no less. And some of them, they are comparing Zelensky to David Ben-Gurion. This week, a year into Russia's invasion of Ukraine, I made Svetlova a cup of tea in Jerusalem and we spoke about what matters now. Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Sarachuk Law Firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Sarachek's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis, so they're only compensated when they succeed. The Sarachek Law Team strongly supports Israel. You can reach the Sarachek Team at www.sarachuklawfirm.com. That's S-A-R-A-C-H-E-K, lawfirm.com, or at 646-403-9775. The proceeding is an attorney advertisement, and past results are no guarantee of future performance. Senia, thank you so much for joining me today. It's such a pleasure to host you here in our Jerusalem offices. And you're here because I want to pick your brain over the gear of the Russian invasion to Ukraine. And so I ask you, Ksenia, what matters now? Well, uh, what matters is, of course, the upcoming uh, Russian attack, a new attack uh, of Ukraine that was announced basically by Putin uh, in the beginning of the year. Nobody knows exactly what what is the plan and whether uh, the Russians even have the ability to, uh, you know, join the forces and to send more soldiers uh, into battle than they do now. What kind of weapon can they present that they did not present so far? Uh, but at least uh, the Ukrainians are getting ready. Uh, the winter is over. The spring is coming. And of course, you know, the front will be uh, re-energized uh, again. Okay, so, so far, a year in, Russia has lost something like 200,000 soldiers. Ukraine has lost somewhere between 100,000 to 130 Ukrainians, including civilians. Who do you see winning the war right now? Well, um, I was looking at this phenomenal photo of uh, President Biden standing with President Zelensky in Kiev. 
and uh, they were standing uh, in the background. There was this monastery, spectacular, with the uh, gold uh, domes. Uh, it's called Mikhailovsky Monastery. And here they are, one year later, after Putin basically planned to uh, take uh, Kiev in three days. Three days, okay? So uh, after a year, uh, Biden uh, feels safe enough uh, to go to Kiev, to embrace Zelensky, to signal to Russia that Ukraine today is firmly in the American sphere of interest. So I think it's quite clear who is winning. Uh, but this is uh, talking about uh, morale, about, uh, you know, uh, so in the victory or in the battlefield, I do not expect uh, that the end game, um, you know, will unfold soon. Uh, this is something that uh, it's ongoing war. Uh, it can uh, freeze, it can be re-energized, but uh, I do not foresee, in the time being, do not foresee a military victory for anyone. And perhaps it's impossible uh, altogether. Okay, so let's unpick Putin's speech from yesterday, which was, to me, as a, a non-Russian speaker and just hearing it through interpretation, was really striking for, one, him blaming the West for the beginning of the war. Number two, again, the use of neo-Nazis. And number three, this attack on Western non-values, shall we say. So let's begin with number one. Uh, before we get to that, I just have to mention, and I listened to the whole two hours. It's like unbelievable suffering, but I had to do it. I saw <laughs> on Twitter that you shared all sorts of memes of yeah. people sleeping through the speech. Yes, so uh, funny. The, the officials, uh, the high-ranking Russian officials were just like, you know, sleeping, snoring during the whole speech. And it's understandable because 90% of it actually focused on economy, on domestic affairs, how he's going to spread now money. He mentioned the sum trillion rubles. Uh, I don't know how much is it in dollars right now, but substantial sum of money that he wants to spread it between now different funds and to help the soldiers and to help the families and children and education and everything. Basically, I thought he would never stop. <laughs> so I think that the focus was basically economy, economy, economy. Uh, the war is not doing great. He has nothing to basically present uh, as a clear victory. Uh, Russia was losing uh, territory uh, during the last uh, half of the uh, 2022. So uh, when he says that, well, it was not our making, uh, it was not our war, uh, because the West basically forced us to go to this war. So it's not something that we were eager to do and sacrifice our men and so on. Okay, so this is first. This is the doing of the West. But this is something that he says it all the time. He always blames the West for everything, by the way. Uh, so uh, uh, from that, uh, to go to, uh, uh, you know, attack on the family values. Uh, again, you know, so it's all the time this comparison. So the West, the evil West that forced us to go to this uh, horrible war, uh, they have uh, this uh, uh, moral degradation. Uh, he mentioned pedophilia that is being approved by uh, 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 priests and like other stuff. Priests are being forced to marry same-sex yeah. couples. So he, he's uh, stressing the uniqueness of Russia uh, with its traditional family values. We are different. We are different from the West. Uh, we are the moral ones. They are the immoral. We want peace. They want war. This all, this dichotomy, you know, it runs through his whole speech. But again, this is nothing new. We know uh, his way of thinking. Uh, and uh, while, you know, 20 years ago, 22 even, in the beginning of his reign, uh, he said during his visit to Bundestag that Russia is a friendly European country. He said it by his own lips. So uh, today you cannot imagine that he would return to this. Russia is different. 
uh, the West is different, and the war that we wage is essentially not with Ukraine. It's with the West, and uh, no, no, there's no uh, uh, wonder that uh, we are not doing perhaps so great. He doesn't say it, but he implies that the whole might of the West uh, that uh, lied to us, they promised promises to us not to expand NATO, uh, and they're doing this. Basically, we, are, we were forced to defend ourselves, otherwise we would be destroyed. And uh, family values, again, this is what makes us different from the other guys. So before we get to the neo-Nazi part, how did the Russians actually hear this? I mean, he's saying it, but are they believing it? Are they on the same page? Unfortunately, I can, can, I can tell you that many people believe what he says because they were brainwashed for so long. And, um, you know, it can happen to any society, especially if it's a authoritarian regime, closed society, not much interaction, you know, and no much interaction like how. For example, I was looking at the Russian academic community. They were publishing in Russian all the time. You know, for me, as somebody who's doing her endless PhD, you know, it's like unimaginable. But how there is no interaction between you and what other people are doing in England, in US, in Canada, and so on. Basically, they were secluded. In this situation, it's very easy to brainwash you about the neo-Nazis, uh, about um, us, uh, you know, winning. So, but you are giving up territory. How are you winning? No, it's tactic. It's tactic. Uh, we will regain the territory. We will uh, pre- prevail. Uh, it's a sure deal because God is with us. Okay. This is something that is very strong. Uh, and Putin makes sure uh, to sh- show up at the church. Uh, he's not perhaps a religious person, but this is the uh, image that he's building to himself. Amazing. Now, let's talk about the neo-Nazis, which at the beginning of the war, at least, was being used by both sides. But I'm not sure if it still is by the Ukrainians. So talk about the Russian use of the neo-Nazi imagery. So, you know, I think that in order to understand how did Putin reach, you know, this idea to label uh, Ukrainians with their Jewish president and Jewish minister of defense and tons of Jewish uh, MPs uh, and advisors and uh, businessmen and so on to, you know, like label them as neo-Nazis. Um, it was something that was, it was there was a buildup to that during the last, um, I would say, 10 to 15 years. Uh, the, the narrative of the victory in the Second World War, uh, Russians are the victors, and Ukraine, the Europe, Europe was weak. Uh, it fell and collaborated. It fell to the uh, to the Nazis, and perhaps now uh, we are repeating, you know, this uh, situation of uh, eighty years ago. Uh, we are the good ones, and they're the bad ones. Again, dichotomy. Uh, so uh, uh, every time that there was this parade of some neo-Nazi movement and so on, it was presented in Russian TV. I'm talking to you about 2012, for example, 13, 14, and more so after the annexation of Crimea. So we have a cause. Uh, we have over neo-Nazis over there, and for Russian person, the, every family had somebody who fought in the Second World War. If there are Nazis across the border, so we have to fight them, of course. You know, so uh, it, this is the worst thing that you can say about a person. A Nazi or a neo-Nazi, they confuse this uh, item sometimes. But uh, in any case, you know, this is how he sold this war to the Russians. He said to them, listen, you know, uh, you see the Nazi symbols. Sometimes it was fake, sometimes it was real. Uh, also, you know, in uh, Russia, there are neo-Nazi movements. Some of them are quite strong. Uh, while Ukraine has the lowest le- level of anti-Semitism in the whole Europe. It's uh, remarkable. Uh, but, uh, you know, truth is not the question here. What is the truth? The image. Uh, the Russian people, unfortunately, not all, but many of them, 
they fell completely prey to this propaganda and convincing them of, you know, uh, we are doing what we have to do because look at them. This is like intolerable. How you can in eight years, 10 years, make people like feel this animosity towards the other people that are your brethren, a Slavic people, the language is similar, the culture is similar, the history in the Soviet Union is similar. It's unbelievable. So basically, it's the archetype of evil more than anything else. Let's talk about the final uh, aspect of the speech that I find perhaps most troubling as somebody who grew up under the nuclear arms race. We're of a similar you age. Both. You and me both, <laughs> exactly. I in Canada, you in Russia. And I just remember, you know, drills hiding under my desk against mm-hmm. a nuclear the war. Same. And, and yes. Okay, the same. <laughs> so, of course, he said, uh, Putin yesterday, that he's going to suspend, which apparently is not a real thing, but suspend the New START treaty. So talk to me about this. Well, uh, this is a treaty that um, basically it's the last treaty uh, of of the nuclear control that uh, were signed since 1972. There were a number of treaties. There were sometimes there were new treaties or extensions of the existing ones. This was the extension of something that was signed in 2010 when the atmosphere was completely different. Uh, And uh, there were... You know, competition, but uh, also the cooperation. It was nothing of a kind today, and Putin mentioned that. We signed this treaty in 2010, the new start, uh, because there was trust. And obviously in 2021, we renew it. Uh, but today, when uh, he accused the West of using uh, the territory of Ukraine to... Uh, uh, pound uh, the Russian strategic uh, air force uh, bases uh, that theoretically can also uh, carry a nuclear bomb. So uh, you are doing this, and you expect from us that we will let you, as uh, you know, met, uh, you know, the check out our our sites. Uh, this is we are not about to do, not about to do this. I think that there is it's important to understand the context to this. Uh, there is not much that a year after the beginning of this crazy war. Putin can do to flex his muscle and to make the Americans, the Europeans, to fear, to shake with fear, because his conventional uh, abilities are very modest. And he wasted half of his T-72 tanks, the long-term missiles, all of these precision missiles. They have a problem. They have a real problem. But the nuclear weapon, you know, so again, they are doing this since 2015. You uh, have this boogeyman. uh, Okay, you see what we can do if you will press us to the wall. So every time that Ukraine uh, gets substantial help from the West, and now it was also symbolic with Biden's visit, I think this is basically the only thing that he could do without basically breaking the rules of this, uh, unwritten rules of this current war. Uh, But also like saying, listen, you know, I still have, you know, my abilities, you know what they are. Uh, And I'm just, you know, uh, I'm not about to uh, break the the rules first. But if you will do some uh, trials, so then I will also do it. Um, Basically playing with this very accurately. Uh, It was less evil. It was less sharp than his previous threats. Uh, I was under the impression that, you know, the tone was different. Uh, it was, uh, again, you know, it can be wrong, uh, but um, uh, it felt like that he was very cautious. Uh, uh, he wanted to make uh, a point, but he was also about very cautious about not to scare perhaps also his friends and partners in China uh, that were not very pleased uh, with this destabilization uh, uh, that uh, stemmed from, you know, this kind of threats. Uh, so I think that he was very careful. I'm doing something. Uh, you are, war- you, you know, uh, warned. 
Um, and, um, you know, uh, I have a few more, uh, several items, you know, in my uh, bag, you know, if you will continue support Ukraine and uh, give them more advanced weapons, which Biden didn't give during his current visit, no fighter jets or anything of this kind. Uh, so each side, again, during the whole year, the red lines are being mended a little bit, but not to the degree that uh, one of the sides completely breaks the rules, not even Putin. Okay, let's talk about the flip side. President Zelensky for a minute. At the beginning of the war, one of his famous statements was, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition. And in the meantime, he's gotten at least promises of a lot of ammunition and some ammunition itself. But how do you see his role or his status as changing over the past year? Well, he enjoyed unbelievable support from his people from day one, when it was clear that he's not going anywhere despite the rumors and despite the proposals of an uh, American president to give him a refuge and so on. Um, and he continues to be this uh, celebrity, um, a person who is deeply uh, revered and uh, loved uh, by many people. There is criticism, however, about his surrounding, people who are next to him. Corruption exists. Corruption and war usually go together. And again, you know, this is something that nobody in the West is asking too much questions at this moment. But when the war will either go to this frozen stage or it ends somehow, then there will be very tough questions about what happened. Did he know that, you know, what was the level of his awareness of all of this? But for now, again, you know, this is something that the spirits are very high in Ukraine. And when he speaks to the people, he records this uh, sometimes bi-weekly message and so on. And the people are just like watching it. Like, oh my God, yes, this is what we need to do. Even if it's tough now, even if we are freezing in our houses, you know, we basically were reborn as nation. This is something very huge. They're, it's their moment of 1948, no less. And uh, some of them, they are comparing uh, Zelensky to David Ben-Gurion. So there was a country before, there were presidents before, but not even close to this basically symbolism and this feeling of national pride and ability and finally respect from you know people around the world for truly remarkable achievement. One year since the Russian invasion, when nobody gave a chance, this president and this nation persevered and succeeded and also convincing the whole world to support it, which is huge achievement. You know, it can end very differently. Uh, and basically, I think that many in the West were ready for this to go like, okay, you know, so Putin uh, conquers uh, Kiev, uh, changes the regime, you know, it's tough, but what, what can we do? Happens. <laughs> Happens, you know, some more sanctions maybe, yes, but not something dramatic. Uh, and then, you know, you have this. Uh, it's He changed the course of history. I got married this Monday in the middle of a war. You are not a soldier anymore. You are 50 years old. What is the matter with you? It's like a couple of kilometers from here. Like my friend has a 4 by 4 Let's just go cut across the fields and go get him. Israel Stories Wartime Diaries. Voices that try to capture slivers of life right now. And he told me, take with you a sleeping bag and a tent <laughs> and just go. I texted him on, like after I was told that he was killed. From their eyes, I was a traitor. Everybody needs their like blankie, their teddy bear, something to make them feel safe. I'm just another grandfather looking after his grandchild while his son is off at war. These children of Hamas now 
will be the killer of my children. I desperately wanted to talk about sex during my eulogy for Ido. Everyone has to choose to be optimistic because we don't have room for pessimism. Check out Israel's story wherever you get your podcasts. Now, you said the whole world supports, but there are various degrees of support, of course. And Israel is one country that has had perhaps a lesser degree of support that even some of its uh, members of Knesset would want, who just visited uh, this week Ukraine. I'm talking about Yuli Edelstein and Zev Elkin, of course, who were born in Ukraine. But Israel has been dancing this very difficult waltz between everyone, essentially, because of the Russian influence in our region. So let's talk about, is that really a good enough excuse to not support Ukraine? Uh, personally, I do not believe that it's a good enough excuse, because everything changed during this year. The position of Russia changed, the status, the prestige, uh, the ability. We see how they are overstretched in Ukraine. Um, it's, uh, you know, still far-fetched to imagine that they will leave Syria. Uh, this is a significant asset for them. But uh, we see also how at the same time, they are basically leaving some patches of uh, territory there to the Iranians, simply because they cannot overstretch them uh, in two places at the same time. And Syria is, you know, it's active, you know, the civil war is over, but the insurgency is not done. Uh, you have to basically invest, you have to take care, you have to be there all the time, you know. So I think that, again, you know, um, seeing at what is the real ability of the Russian army, and it was overestimated, I think, by all military experts in the world, uh, uh, overestimating, uh, you know, the ability to inflict harm. Uh, we see how the red lines that were clearly put by Russia to the Europeans, you know. So if you give tanks, we will do this. If you will give I know, patriot, you know, for uh, the Americans, you know, we will do this, we will retaliate, we will do that, we'll do that. Okay, you know, so um, things happen, aid goes, uh, flows to, uh, to, to Ukraine, uh, and the Russians have to just kind of deal with it. So I think that it's very difficult to change these red lines now for Israel, uh, only because it wasted so much time convincing itself that we have to obey, we have to, you know, uh, keep decent relations and so on. But I think, again, when we are talking about defensive weapons, defensive weapons, we are not talking about, uh, you know, supplying to uh, Ukraine Merkava tanks or something like this. Um, but a David Slink, uh, I don't think the Iron Dome is the suitable system, you know, for them. But uh, in his last uh, uh, meeting with Eli Cohen, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, uh, Zelensky basically named uh, the more specifically David Sling, for example, what would happen? You know, so uh, again, Russia that is overstretched, what would it do now in Syria to inflict harm on, on Israel? Well, I think that's part of the question. Russia is overstretched. Some people say 97% of the Russian army is in Ukraine right now. So is it in Israel's interest to leave as much as possible in Syria? to, as you said, uh, stamp down the Iranian influence? Is that Israel's interest? I do not think that Russia ever could uh, limit Iranian influence uh, in Syria. I, I see their cooperation there at two levels. Uh, you have the significant, you know, air bases and uh, air power uh, that is uh, managed by Russia. Uh, and you have the boots on the ground, it's the Iranians. And one cannot do without the other. So they cooperate. They have 
common goal. So perhaps, uh, you know, they had some different image of who will control what part of the Syrian economy, you know, so this is uh, totally, totally understandable, you know, so Putin wanted to give to his oligarchs and the Iranians eye also, you know, a few things there. But uh, rather than that, uh, they are not competing there so much. What is their common goal? The common goal is the survival of Assad's regime, of course, uh, and both of them want to use Syria as a platform for their future activities. For the Iranians, it's the stretch to the Arab Middle East, uh, and for the Russians, it's the control of the shore of the Mediterranean, uh, access to Mediterranean. Europe is just over here, so you need to. They don't have the access otherwise to the Mediterranean. It's the first time. Uh, that their dream about this exit to the warm sea uh, was uh, fulfilled. Uh, and it's a huge deal, of course. Uh, but again, you know, I'm talking about Israel. And again, I'm you know listening to military experts, such as Amos Yadlin, who's been saying repeatedly for the last six, six seven months, it's time to give defensive weapons to Ukraine because we have more to lose from not giving them Uh, uh, then, uh, you know, risk it and they say, oh, why did we do it? Uh, either Israel is part of the collective West. And right now, this is the battle of the collective West. Uh, it's not what, you know, the coin said during his visit to Kiev, Iran, Iran, Iran. Okay, Iran is our pain. Uh, it's our mortal enemy. It's all clear. But uh, you cannot talk in about Iran in Ukraine without naming Russia. Uh, and uh, this is, uh, you know, the challenge, the Russian challenge to the, you know, collective West, to the liberal democracy. Um, again, it's very, uh, given the situation in which Israel is today, there are questions whether <laughs> in, indeed Israel is a part of this big camp, uh, democratic Western countries anymore, or whether it will continue to be like this. Uh, but if we, you know, consider ourselves, yes, a liberal democracy, part of the West, then I think that, you know, there is just one way. Uh, it's to join this effort uh, and uh, to uh, continue with very strict restrictions on the Russian money that flows to Israel. So far, it was close to perfect, you know, f from what I know. But you can always do better. You can introduce sanctions, for example. Uh, somebody told me that the Knesset lacks mechanism to, uh, you know, introduce sanctions. Okay, if you can do the judicial reform in a couple of months, you certainly uh, can, uh, you know, write a bill uh, about introducing sanctions, about specific personalities, companies, uh, and so on. Okay, so the other country that has not been uh, outwardly supporting Ukraine or Russia is not a Western country. It's China, which many are saying that if it were to join one side or the other, boom, World War Three. What do you say? I think that Chinese are always doing what's better for the Chinese. So they are not there to support Putin. They are not there to support Ukraine. They are supporting uh, the interest of Beijing. And in this regard, you know, so you have traditional continuation of voting uh, of China with Russia at UN Security Council. Uh, this is one. At the same time, uh, the Russians were disappointed by the lack of economic support uh, and military support to their effort in Ukraine. Uh, I don't know what calculations did they have about uh, China. I frankly, I didn't follow it so much. But I can tell you that now, uh, when Russia is very pressed uh, for uh, sources of income, uh, it cannot anymore sell gas to Europe, uh, oil, you know, so uh, the two places where it can sell it, it's to China, but China demands a huge discount. And then you it's basically at net worth. 
you know, so you do it in order to not to seal, uh, you know, the oil um, pumping. Yes, pumping. Mm-hmm. Uh, but otherwise, you do not gain from this so much. And they also can sell oil to um, the Latin America. But you know, if you're looking the way of the tankers, uh, it's you know the the way is such much uh, longer, uh, and of course, it diminishes the ability to do this. So basically, they depend on Chinese today. Chinese do not depend on them on nothing. Uh, so uh, and more so, the Chinese are worried of this reckless behavior, uh, this uh, you know uh, 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 mentioning all the time of the nuclear threat and so on. The Chinese need stability, mostly on the oil markets, but not only uh, for the economy to succeed and grow and so on. So the relations are chilly. Uh, they are not picking sides, which I think is it's the best that you can get for the West. It's the best that you can get right now. And uh, again, for the sanctions, this is also very important. Uh, there is this kind of image that, you know, uh, the Western world introduced sanctions against Russia, but there are tons of ways to evade them. Um, the last uh, packages of sanctions that we introduced one by one, they curtail the ability of Russia to uh, get help from some other uh, partners in order to evade uh, the sanctions. Whether it's Turkey that, you know, they uh, received the Russian paying uh, method, uh, Mircard, uh, and after some pressure from the United States, this stopped. You know, so I've been just now in Abu Dhabi. I saw Russian uh, tourists unable also to use their cards uh, uh, over there. So it means the pressure is working. Um, and uh, I think that it will continue growing. Okay, we've been talking very much on a global level. Now let's zoom into the Jewish communities in both Russia and in Ukraine. What do you know about what's happening there? Well, you have Jews living in a more significant and quick tempo, Russia, than they do, uh, you know, Ukraine. I'm talking about Aliyah to Israel. So more Russian Jews came to, to Israel during the last year uh, than Ukrainian Jews. First of all, because for many Ukrainian Jews, you know, the husbands are fighting or the brothers and the family is staying somewhere in Europe in, uh, you know, uh, hoping to reconnect and whether, you know, to stay in Ukraine, some other place, but to reconnect, it's closer. Um, Russian Jews, uh, that they are lacking options because they are not wanted anywhere. Uh, it's uh, becoming more difficult to go to other countries, even Georgia, uh, which received what, like over, I think, 150,000 uh, refugees from Russia, uh, is, you know, starting to stop some people at the crossing points and so on. And there are also... Uh, this feeling that the Georgians are not very happy with this influx uh, of Russians to their country. So Israel, for now, uh, is still open. Uh, and I think that Aliyah will definitely increase. Uh, maybe we'll reach 100,000. It depends on what will be happening. But when, uh, you know, Putin, every time that he talks about, you know, uh, hints that there will be new mobilization, uh, wave and so on, this is something that makes people, especially in the Jewish community, no, we don't want this. We don't want for our children to go to this war uh, and uh, they go away. The Russian, the, the Jewish institutions in Russia, to my opinion, they are fully controlled right now by the, um, you know, state uh, security apparatus uh, and all of this. And we see how in the International Holocaust Day, uh, Putin summoned the two chief rabbis, uh, Boroda and Berlazar, uh, and uh, they discussed uh, neo-Nazis and, uh, you know, this threat to the world uh, and and so on, you know. So it was like unbelievable, unbelievable to have two Jewish people uh, sitting uh, with a man who wages uh, this uh, brutal war uh, against the nation um, and killing people there and talking about neo-Nazis. But that's the level of control 
you know, so just like in Iran, the Jewish representatives of the community can be summoned in order to have like good optics. Yes, good yeah. optics. Yes, it's an image that you have Jews that support him and Muslims who support him and so on. I would say that the atmosphere is it's kind of bleak. There are still people who are sitting on the fence because they know that Aliyah to Israel is becoming increasingly difficult. They also hear about the possible change of the law of return and uh, they don't know how what to make out of it so much, you know, so they're confused and not necessarily Israel will be the answer, you know, in the future. For uh, Ukrainian Jews, again, it's the same. Uh, less of them are coming to Israel, but I think that if you want to help Ukraine and you want to help Jews there, you have to have your door open for them all the time uh, without, uh, you know, this making this, uh, what, uh, you know, proportion of blood uh, runs in the veins, uh, Jewish blood. So, um both communities, you know, in Ukraine, the situation is much worse, of course, because many communities were just destroyed completely. Um, they were evacuated and they would be never, they will never resume their, their work. Uh, some people uh, ended in Germany, some in Israel. Communities are dispersed. Uh, this is a horrific ravage uh, of this Jewish life that was rebuilt uh, since the beginning of 90s. Um, it will be very difficult to reinstate it, even if people will go back. Some cities will be unlivable for, for, the decade, for decades. Okay, so we've talked about the Ukraine invasion. Since you are a former member of Knesset and you've kind of touched here and there on how you feel about the judicial overhaul that's happening here in Israel, but please, Bechozet, in any case, give me a few uh, words of your thoughts on this. You know, for me, especially since I was born in the autocratic country, and uh, I have this historic memory also of my own family, uh, where you know, my own grandfather, he was sentenced to uh, 10 years of gulags in 1938, and he was executed before he reached uh, the gulags. Uh, the, court, the court was very quick. Uh, the judges were nominated by the Communist Party, uh, and that's it, you know, so... Uh, for people who say to me, listen, you know, this is Russia, this is Soviet Union, it doesn't have any connection to our life here. What do you mean? I said, no. But at the same time, when you give the politicians this absolute power over all of the branches of authority, um, you have to expect that bad things will happen. Uh, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Uh, so this is very scary. Uh, I participate uh, in... Um, uh, both uh, the um, uh, demonstrations, of course, as a civilian, but also as an XMK, I participate in this initiative of uh, um, Zava Galon, ex-head uh, uh, of merits, uh, Tzav Hirum. Uh, this is an initiative of XMKs who are coming to the Knesset, to the committees, uh, and uh, reinforcing uh, the opposition members who are there. Uh, who mom, some of them are new, some of them don't have experience. So we are sitting there, we are asking also uh, for an opportunity to, to speak out. Um, and uh, so, you know, that's, and there is also a petition that was signed in less than a week by quarter of million of Israeli citizens, and the numbers are growing all the time. Uh, I, I personally think that's my duty. I saw it basically developing in my years in Knesset uh, since 2015 until 2019 during the 20th Knesset um, when uh, it was clear uh, that the charges will be pressed against Benjamin Netanyahu that's then they started uh, before that Netanyahu didn't have any problem with the judiciary he praised it he was proud of it. Uh, he always, uh, you know, make an, made an example of how great our judiciary, the moment the charges were pressed, you know, this uh, 
horrible campaign started against the uh, uh, judiciary and police and prosecutors and media. It was ongoing, <laughs> you know. So uh, uh, I'm really scared uh, for the democratic future uh, of this country. And um, for for me, you know, and you know, especially f for uh, those of us who came from other countries, like Olim, um, you say, you know, I made this way. It was difficult, integration and all of this, you know, like, uh, uh, but this country became mine. And now I see how its fundamental, you know, basics are being ruined uh, for personal reasons, just for somebody to escape uh, the trial. Uh, it, it's unbelievable. Xenia, thank you so much for sharing your insight and your expertise into everything we talked about today. Thank you. With great pleasure. Todaraba. Hello, I'm sitting here with Laser Behrman, our diplomatic correspondent, who has had a chance to listen to what former member of Knesset Ksenia Svetlova said about uh, the Russian invasion to Ukraine and where we stand, etc., etc. So, Laser, I'd just like to hear your thoughts about what she said that Russia's presence in Syria is not really a good enough excuse for Israel not to provide at least defensive uh, anti-air missiles and things of the nature to Ukraine. Do you agree? Yes, I've never at any point in the war thought it was a good enough excuse. Uh, the IDF and Israel in general is much, much more powerful than Russia in the Middle East, and we always have been. Um, and there's no way that Russia can match us on our borders. I understand that we don't want to bring an unnecessary fight to ourselves, but in the past, in the Cold War, when the Soviet Union was much more powerful than Russia is today, and Israel was much less powerful than Israel is today, Israel had no problem killing Soviet pilots and anti-aircraft crews over our borders in Egypt and Syria when they got in the way of our operations. So if it came to that, if the Russians decided to actively um, get in the way of what we're trying to do in Syria, we certainly should not be afraid of sending the right kind of message. And I think the fact that we're presenting ourselves as so deterred and, and so weak because of the presence of some slightly problematic Russian capabilities over our borders, um, I think sends the wrong message and shows that we are not going to necessarily pursue our interests and our values, but we can be pushed around by bullies like Russia. So why do you think Israel is taking that stance and has been taking that stance through several governments now? At the same time, in addition to what I just said, I don't think it's such a ridiculous uh, position for Israel because let's remember, Israel is, I would say, 100% part of the West and 50% part of the region as well, if, if, if that works mathematically. And I think that uh, Israel's position kind of reflects that dual nature, right? So it, 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 it offers humanitarian aid, it says things that are in line with the West. At the same time, like its neighbors around the region and beyond, if you look in the Gulf, if you look um, Arab countries, if you look at India, Turkey even, these are not countries that are imposing their own sanctions um, on Russia. There are countries that understand it's not their fight. Europe and the West sees this as the big moral fight um, You know, in the past, you know, I don't know how long you want to go back, since the end of the Cold War. But we in the region, we know we have our own fights. And this is a, you know, it's, it's a tragic situation. It's certainly an illegal aggression by Russia. But we have there's other fights in the world that the world hasn't paid as much attention to. I'm sure the Arab world is thinking about Yemen. Um, in, in the subcontinent, they're looking at other wars that have happened there that you know the, the West paid some attention to, but not the same. And we have Iran. So I don't think it's crazy at all that in Israel pursues its own interests. 
um, while at the same time trying to do as much as it can for Ukraine. With that said, I think it can do more without violating its interests and without harming uh, Israeli security. Okay. We started our conversation, Ksenia and I, talking about what's next for the war. So take us out with that as well. Absolutely. Um, I just would like to reflect, as she did, as you know, when I was there before the war, I thought the war's not going to happen. The war started. I expected it to be over very quickly, just in past Ukrainian performance. It's incredible what they've done for the past year. It's incredible that, that they're really winning this thing. But at the same time, there's going to be no Ukrainian march on Moscow to end this, and there's going to be no uh, Russian drive into Kiev. It's not going to happen. What, this is going to end at some point with a negotiated settlement. Uh, the terms of that are still obviously being uh, fought over now on the on the battlefield. Russia seems determined to throw what they have left, which is really manpower, not a ton of equipment, but manpower into another offensive. It seems like that offensive has started around Bakhmut in, in, in southeastern um, Ukraine. What I would expect is Russia to make some gains in the next couple of months when that offensive has culminated when they run out of gas, you'll see a much larger Ukrainian counteroffensive in the spring, and that could be decisive. So I think in a best case scenario, you're looking at early, uh, late spring, or early summer, where Russia could really be knocked off balance and, and be brought um, to some sort of negotiating table. Worst case is this kind of gets stuck World War One style, where they expected a very quick war at the beginning, and now both sides um, kind of jockey with each other over very small pieces of territory. That's not a good scenario, but I can't see the West giving up on that now. The one uh, wild card there is if in late 2024, if let's say Donald Trump comes back to office or a Republican who really sees things like him, um, that could really limit American aid, which would limit Western aid to the fight. And that could really shake things up as well. Laser, thank you for all of that. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's What Matters Now with Ksenia Svetlova. Special thanks to our producer, Gilad Brownstein, and my podcast partner in crime, Jessica Steinberg. As always, a shout out to Feedback Whiz, Mick Weinstein. Have something you want to tell us at What Matters Now? Drop us a line at podcast at timesofisrael.com. Enjoy What Matters Now? Subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Until next week, shalom. Shalom.